Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food. And this week we're chatting to a new voice in food, someone Diana Henry calls amazing, original, boundary-breaking, a genius with flavour. He's a cool hunter. He's a podcaster and writer. He's Gurdip Loyal. There are metaphors around the white notes and the black notes of a piano. You know, even if people just understand from the book that if you only use the white notes, you can play Happy Birthday and that's it. But as soon as you use the black notes, you can play everything in the world. And by the way, there are also notes in between those notes, which if you listen to a sitar, suddenly you unravel all of those notes. Since he won the Jane Grigson Trust Award in 2020 for his proposal for Mother Tongue, the food world has been salivating as we wait for the arrival of the book. Anna Jones says every so often a rare cookbook comes along which brings something completely new and fascinating to the world of food. Claudia Roden says she's thrilled to be drawn into Gurdip's extraordinary diaspora and fantastic world of flavours. Felicity Cloak says he's a Willy Wonka wizard of flavour. I began by asking him if his previous career as a trend consultant helped him find what so many people are calling this extraordinarily original voice. I think it's helped in that I understand the importance of it and the nature of it. Because for so many years, you know, I was working, you know, whether it was at Harrods or Innocent Drinks or MS where I was, it was such a crucial, you know, getting the message out there was such a crucial part. It doesn't make it any less daunting to then have the camera turned on myself. <laughs> And I actually now have a lot more sympathy for all of the people that I've worked with over the years, helping them to promote their book, because, wow, it is quite something when it's turned on yourself. And it's interesting, because you are going to come and talk a little bit about this at, um, at our food writing retreat for an intimate yes. group of um, of food writers. But are you able to kind of share, because there's lots and lots of people who listen to this podcast who, you know, like you, food writers and, you know, bloggers and content creators who really want to know how to get their message out there. What have you, from a professional point of view as a marketing and PR person, but also as a receiver of this or as a, somebody who's experiencing yes. it right now, what would you say is it? What, what do you have to do? I think what you have to do is to, one, be firstly yourself absolutely crystal clear in what your message is and what you're trying to project and what makes your book. Because ultimately, and I hate to say this as much as it is a a beautiful work of, you know, your whole life on, on a page, it's also a product that needs to sell. And actually, I think you sort of need to lose any preciousness about that because ultimately that's, I think, where people succeed and don't. And actually, often I think that's where people get book deals and also where they don't is because actually the ultimately the publishers need to be able to sell books. It's a product that they will print and invest a lot in and you yourself will invest a lot in not only in terms of, you know, the recipe development, but emotionally, you know, you put so much of yourself into it. But then also, I think being really sort of perceptive about what the publication or the podcast or the magazine, whatever it is, what angle is interesting to them. For me, I've been on the other side, so I've understood the importance of that. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because you mentioned three brands there. Innocent Drinks, a fantastically original, uh, clear, clear, clear message about what that is. Harrods, clear, clear, clear message about what that is. M&S, super, super clear message about what that is. Each of those brands offers a completely different thing to yeah, lots completely. of different people but yeah. we absolutely know mm. what, they are. what they are and there was yeah. a, i mean innocent was and you which you worked on was all about voice it was i think you're absolutely right and i learned i know i was innocent when it was a startup i i was sort of person number 
yeah. 100 to join. You know, it was a brand new company. And, you know, startups didn't exist then. This was like, I remember calling my parents. I had a consulting job in the city, which I just wasn't enjoying. And I sort of rang home to say, I'm, I'm leaving my consulting job to join a startup in this warehouse in Shepherd's Bush. <laughs> and they didn't, they didn't care that it was in a warehouse in Shepherd's Bush. What they cared about was that they'd never heard this phrase startup before. They were like, what's a startup? And I was like, well, it's, a, you know, it's this new style of company that's going to shake up the world. And, you know, it really did. And I learned so much there. And actually the founders, um, Richard Reed in particular, has been such an inspiration. They all have been a huge inspiration to me. But his thing that he said to everyone from the very beginning, and he's still, it's still his mantra, is keep the main thing the main thing. <laughs> That's what he says throughout everything, whether it was a piece of communication, whether it was a new drink that they were coming up with, whether it was, you know, a presentation that you were doing to a board or to some consumers, whatever it was. His thing was is it 100% clear? And if it's not, ask yourself, is the main thing the main thing or is it not? So what is the main thing in, uh, I mean, I'll tell you what I think the main thing is in a minute, but tell me what you think the main thing is in mother tongue. (laughs) This this is the irony. I think I've got so many main things in the book. I think, what what I hope that the main thing is, is that identity and food are so intrinsically linked that they just can't be separated, but they are not something that is fixed. They are not something that is static. They are something that ever evolves through history, through time. Um, and your, in, your identity is only ever an expression of that point in time. But it owes itself every single thing that's happened in the past. And so what I hope the message of it is, is that you should celebrate with full flavorful glory everything that you are. But know that in a week or two weeks' time, you're going to be a different person. And actually, in a few generations' time, it's going to evolve and it will evolve again. And actually, the flavourful journey that food takes along the way is wonderful and interesting and intriguing and brilliant and multifaceted and sometimes sad and sometimes hard to, to you know, and, and imbued with history and all these things and should be celebrated at every snapshot. And this is my snapshot of me here right now and it's owed a lot to my mum. It owes a lot to her mum and her mum. But this is me. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I hope the message is. It, it is. It is absolutely. I, I just sent a message to um, some um, of my young pals in Madrid who did, made the Domestica film, which has just gone live uh, at, at nine o'clock this morning, uh, which is terrifying. And I said, uh, just about to record a fab gay Indian food writer about how he writes his cultural hybridity into his food, as you do. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot of adjectives there, but they're all, you know, we are all multifaceted. And me, as a British Indian person, I am not here representing all British Indians. What I am doing, though, is representing the fact that all British Indians are different. Yeah, we are all multifaceted. I happen to be out, proud, queer, travel a lot, really into fashion, living in East London, and. Other people will, might be straight, not into fashion in any way, really, you know, just very connected to their own local community. But we are both British Indian. And I think you know, this is one of my things, things that I find really interesting is that there's a lot of sort of weight that sort of gets put onto diasporic food writers, I think, to sort of go, well, you know, there's a, you know you've been chosen, so you're representing the whole community. And I do, yes, I, I totally feel that weight. But for me, what I wanted this book to do was to liberate that and say... 
yes, I've been given this platform, but with this platform, I'm going to say, we are all different. <laughs> we are all multifaceted. And therefore, the fact that you're using those adjectives for me does not mean that those same adjectives will apply to another British Indian person. And yet on a form, we will both take that box. Yeah, absolutely. And it is, you know, going back to the main thing about the main thing is it's about voice and each voice is completely different. And I think that what you've done, well, in fact, you talk about this, you know, the queer culture has helped to hybridise you. You use the word hybridity yeah. and hybrid yes, quite a lot in this book. Yeah. It's like you've thrown out all the rules and you've started again. You know, there's an explosion of flavours. My daughter's partner is a chef. They're 22. And they were looking through this book in a completely different way to the way that I was looking. Right. They were looking at all the burgers and the nachos and they they were saying, (laughs) wow, that is so cool. And I was literally watching their mind being blown. And it was a totally different way that my mind was being blown. You know, when I was making up some of your food moments, which we'll go through later, I was making them for friends of my generation. And they were going, wow, is that really a custard tart with fennel seed? You know, and that was really cool. But what George was doing was something quite different. And it was young and it was exciting and it was queer. And it was, you know, very, very bright and actually. Yeah, yeah. So wonderful to hear. And that was, that was my entire objective. And, you know, the, the queerness in this comes through, you know, in many ways, right from the fact that we have a bright pink Liberace robe of a cover through to the fact that... um What I really wanted to do with this book was to really extend this whole idea of being non-binary in first in terms of my Britishness or my Indianness. I don't see myself as having to be British one day and Indian the next day. I am the full spectrum of Britishness and the full spectrum of Indianness. It is not binary. There is not one way to be British and one way to be Indian. And there is not one way to be British Indian. So for me, the book wanted to break that down, break down Mm. that binary, just at its very basic from an identity perspective. But therefore, from a flavour perspective, the thing that I'm really interested in is this idea of what are the boundaries of Britishness and what are the boundaries of Indianness? And I don't believe that there should be boundaries because the boundaries are so blurred and so porous. And in the same way, it's the same as saying, well, what are the the boundaries of being a male or a female or gay or bi. And Mm. it's, you know, it's a spectrum. There is so many ways of being whatever gender you might happen to be. There are so many different ways of, you know, being a sexuality. I've certainly been a spectrum of sexuality throughout my life. (laughs) I am currently a gay man and who knows? (laughs) Maybe in a year or time I won't be. Like it's, you know, it's a spectrum. And for me, what I wanted this book to be was a joyful celebration of all of that, but to, in many ways, make people to really just think about that in a sort of, well, you know, what are the boundaries of a culture? Should there be boundaries to a culture? And actually, my most interesting question in all of this is, who gets Mm. to decide? It's interesting that you use the word culture in a different way as well. You talk a lot about music. Um, A lot of your Instagram posts are about music as well. Music is terribly important to you. You studied music as a a child. You use music to describe flavour and layering and texture. And you use a lot of musical metaphor, which is really fascinating. And it brings the food alive in in a different way and also brings your individuality to it so you do talk a lot about this layering of of experience you talk about the recipes that are passed down orally through the generations and they change each time and they go into each person's experience within the family just your family 
and that's got its own history as well. Then there's all the travel. But then there's all that other experience, like, for example, a prism of music to see through and to experience through. You know, and and how are you aware are you when people are reading it that they are going to put their own experience on that? Oh, I'm very, very aware of it. And for me, one of the reasons I want I use this musical metaphor firstly because it's extremely personal to me, and I I actually sometimes find the language of food quite limiting, and therefore to just again just not abandon the language of food, but to bring in the language of music just gave me this whole other spectrum of words that I could use. So for me, that was really important. I also just actually felt that using a language of music, I actually just felt was even more universal than talking about um, food. And therefore, if people even never, ever cook from this, if they take my idea of, you know, thinking about food as uh, as flavours of different notes and building flavour combinations as chords and flavour chords and how I think about that... Even if they just understood at a very basic level the sort of, you know, there are metaphors around the white notes and the black notes of a piano. You know, even if people just understand from the book that if you only use the white notes, you can play Happy Birthday and that's it. But as soon as you use the black notes, you can play everything in the world. And by the way, there are also notes in between those notes, which if you listen to a sitar, suddenly you unravel all of those notes. For me, there was this whole thing around, I wanted people to be able to engage on this book in many different levels. Um... At its most intimate, people will take the book and cook from it and put their own flavour spin on it and, you know, really enjoy that. But also, at a very surface level, I really do hope that people read it, maybe read into something from their own culture and put their own personal stamp on it. I very much want that to happen. And actually, part of the sort of section that is around my sort of flavour chords approach was to give people a way of sort of, I suppose, structuring and framing their own flavour intuition. I very, very much talk about the fact that this is not a book about the science of flavour, but it is about honing your intuition, whatever you happen to have in your pantry. And it's there intentionally. And I want people to sort of use the sort of flavour bubbles that we have and go, and go, well, what have I got in my pantry? Okay, I've got all this stuff that is actually on in this book. Wow, look at all this stuff I could do with it if I use this approach. And for me, a musical metaphor felt like a more universal way of kind of doing that, even than sort of talking about Indian food, which maybe not everyone has necessarily engaged with. So, um, yeah, it was interesting. And, you know, it's it's my way of, of putting myself into this narrative. Um, yeah. I, your music is extremely important to me, but also... For me, the music that I find most exciting is music that has all sorts of cultural influences sort of brought together. People like, you know, Yo-Yo Ma, Anushka Shankar, Maurice Ravel, who I'm so obsessed with that I have him tattooed on my wrist. You know, he is this intriguing French composer that ripped up the rules of harmony that was very French, but extremely connected to his Spanish um, Basque mother, always imbuing his music with his Basque mother tongue, um, effectively. And it's, it's hugely influential to me. And I, it, it was my, it had to come through the book. It just had yeah. to. <laughs> and, and it really, really does. I mean, even when you're talking about your family, you're talking about the edible echoes on the plate. Yeah. Um, and let's <laughs> go into your your 
family history. Your father came from Kenya uh, to India. He was born in Kenya and then they went back to India and then uh, came to England when he was about 12. So Kenya to India to Leicester is his journey. And your mother came over to marry your father in arranged marriage. And she was here only for six weeks before they got married. It's a very beautiful start to the book. You say you're very aware that although you're to call the book Mother Tongue, that your mother may not actually be able to understand every single word in it. No, she won't. I mean, the the second word... The second word in the book is irony. And my mum doesn't understand what the word irony is. Like, it's just not, it's not a word that she would have used and, and that she quite gets. So yeah. for me, there is a sort of, there is this sort of intriguing paradox about the whole book. And in some ways, you know, it's not, it's not a sort of ironic title, but there is, there is so much irony imbued in the whole thing. It, it's sort of a, a, a spectrum of identity in many ways. And for me, the fact that my mum won't be able to read the whole book unless it's translated into Punjabi... Um, and the fact that I won't be able to read the book in Punjabi, which is yeah. my mother tongue, is itself, you know, just a huge reflection of this whole sort of what I call the delicious contradictions of my hybrid identity in itself. And I wanted to celebrate that. I didn't want to say, oh, isn't it bad that I can't read Punjabi? I sort of say, well, I'm, I was born here. Like, I, yeah. my Punjabi is very limited. And my mum was born in India. And yes, she's been here for, what, 40 years. But her, her speaking English is great. Yeah. Her reading and writing is not as good. So, you know, it's the very first sentence of the book. But actually, before that, there is a dedication to the book, which is in Punjabi. So, But but the food is the language, and it does transcend it. And I'm sure that your mother, even if she doesn't understand uh, a lot of the musical metaphor, she gets that. She yes. gets it because she gets you, and she understands the layering uh, of, of all these different flavours. And these flavour chords, they come from her and her grandmother and her gran- great-grandmother before her, uh, and they are layered by you. Just explain those those flavour chords. The way that it sort of works is that I want people to put their own stamp on... I, I think you can honour your own history and your own sort of background and your own heritage and your own culture by putting your stamp on it in the present. Because actually, I only have the life that I have because of everything that my mum did coming over from India marrying my dad the loving marriage that they have they've sent me to university I only have the job I have because of them and they could only have done that because of what their mum and dad did before them so for me what's most interesting is that I think there are lots of questions around authenticity as well which come into this which we can come on to but for me I'm doing what she did and what her own mother did, which is that to actually say, well, I'm actually putting my stamp on it. This is what I did with it. And actually, I'm not disrespecting my past. I'm actually honouring it by saying, thank you for you giving me this world. And this is what I've done with it. So it's really interesting for me because actually, when when I was developing the book, I was talking about this idea with my mum and she said, you know what, it's really interesting. And she was reflecting on her own mother, my grandma. And she said that my my mum was one of nine And my grandma was, I think, 18 or 19 when she had her first child and was well into her 40s when she had her last child, my mum. And it's really interesting because my mum and her brothers and sisters all have a completely different opinion on what their mum's cooking was. So my mum's eldest sister says mum's cooking was very Punjabi. She used coriander seasoned cumin it was very spicy. It was very chilly. My mum's take on it is, it was actually quite fresh. It was actually quite light. And actually, she used a lot of mustard seeds and she used a lot of other stuff. 
The interesting thing about it is their opinion on their own mother is different because she was a different woman in that time. She'd migrated. She'd gone, she'd gone from Punjab, where my, my aunt was born, when my grandma was 19, to Calcutta, where my mum was born. And in Calcutta, my grandma had absorbed all these influences. So for me, it was really interesting because I was sort of saying, well, you know, what I'm doing is I'm putting my stamp on your cooking and on your grandma's cooking. And she says, well, that's interesting because, you know... As, as women, we are not static. We were not, we were not in a bubble of, you know, just we only cooked Punjabi food. We were dynamic. We were worldly. We were curious. In the same way that when my mum came from Punjab to Leicester, she didn't just exist in this Punjabi bubble. She went out into Leicester and experienced everything. So I kind of wanted to sort of debunk this myth of these static women in villages in India that did not absorb influence because they just don't exist. I don't know who they are. Of course. Um, well, of course. And and your mother also had a radio show where she was talking she to women about their recipes. It's like a kind of Punjabi version of Claudia Roden, isn't it? Sort of, you know, talking to women who'd never written their recipes down, getting all yeah. these extraordinary... I mean, talking presumably exactly about that sort of thing. Well, absolutely. For me, so yes, my mum's radio show, Girlbop, it was, it was probably a little less highbrow than Claudia Road and a little bit more sort of gossipy and titillating. <laughs> like, but um, but um, yes, well, exactly that. What We as a family are very interested in hearing stories through food. And actually, and I talk about it, actually, one of the recipes in the book, uh, Dokla, which is a, a, a chickpea lentil cake, which is firstly very Gujarati. Um, you know, we traditionally in Punjab, it's, it's not a very Punjabi thing to eat, but... We, my mum has always totally loved it. And actually, what was interesting was on her show, the recipe that would be most often swapped was this recipe for Dorkla. And everyone had their own take on it. Everyone was certain that theirs was the authentic Gujarati Dorkla. Yeah. Yeah. So, and the interesting thing was, mum was like, oh, well, maybe theirs is better than theirs. And theirs is better than theirs. And so we used to try a new one every single week because my mum was so obsessed with finding the zenith of what was the perfect Gujarati Dorkla. And the truth is, they all are. Because they are all imbued with each family's way of doing it. So my Dorkla um, has bacon through it. Because <laughs> growing up, I would eat Dorkla with bacon. And I was like, well, if I'm putting my story on this, I have to add bacon to it. Because that's how I ate it growing up. So it's, you know, for me, this whole idea of things evolving and, you know, what is the true Dorkla? Well, they all are. Exactly. And and that leads us perfectly onto, you know, the whole issue of authenticity. That is always a disputed idea. There is no such thing. It's the, probably the most discussed thing in food and identity. Yeah. Um, you know, you say it's ephemeral. And that's a really interesting word. It sort of floats on the breeze, doesn't it? But it speaks to you regardless, to a part of you at least, regardless of where you are. And you say it's an, an unending reel of culinary snapshots, an evolving spectrum that captures many transformative moments along flavourful journeys in generations yes. of kitchens. The longest sentence in the book. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, you know, let's put that onto the samosas, your first food yes. moment. You know, that that is a perfect example of it you know you've got harissa paneer pistachio and fennel seed samosas i mean wow tell me about that <laughs> yes so, i mean samosas are the quintessential representation of indian food around the world if you think about indian food you would probably kind of go either to a curry or to a samosa and you know it's 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 a thing that's been such a part of every single 
moment of my life, to be honest, whether it's a wedding, whether it's a birthday, whether it's, you know, just someone's passed an exam, whether it's, dare I say it, even after funerals, when we've had days and days of mourning, at some point, weeks in, someone will go to the shop and come back with samosas. And it's actually the, uh, often the point where the relief of the grieving is sort of slightly lifted and actually people kind of go, well, yes, we must continue because there is joy in life. And, you know, firstly, I just, I mean, I love samosas because they, they're imbued with so much of this history to me. But what I find most interesting is that, you know, samosas themselves, whilst they are this archetypal symbol of Indianness, are themselves immigrants to India. <laughs> I mean, they originate... There, there is a lot of speculation about where they, where they originate. Um, often they're sort of seen as originating in Turkey or sort of North Africa. But then they sort of travel across kind of, you know, into sort of Afghanistan, into kind of the sort of Pakistan area. And then with the Mughals became a sort of part of Indian culture. So this sort of thing in Turkey called the Samusak, which sort of travelled ultimately became this pyramid of wonder that is a symbol of Indianness, which I in itself just think is really intriguing. You know, if someone says, well, what's the most authentic Indian food? The samosa. Well, actually, that's Turkish. Or is it? I don't know. But for me, I find this whole idea really interesting. So for me, the, the, the samosa in itself, as this symbol of Indianness, that itself is an immigrant, I thought was really interesting. So when it came to mm. doing my own samosas... I've sort of imbued them with all sorts of stuff. So I do a very classic Punjabi samosa. Um, but I love paneer and I love harissa. And I wanted to sort of have something that sort of slightly nodded to that journey. And harissa is a sort of Middle Eastern-y sort of flavour. So I was sort of slightly nodding to that, the history of it. But by saying, well, me in East London today is tracing the journey of the samosa from Turkey to India to East London, where I now am. And then the journeys that will take again and will continue to take. And, you know, yeah. it was that that I wanted to capture in a, in a snack. Which on both levels is, is, you know, it's as individual as you are and is as authentic as yes. that journey is. It's, it's real. Um, a lot of people would say, no, hold on to the actual recipe of where that comes from, you know, because of the diaspora, you know, and Claudia Roden writes to the, about this a lot more. I've interviewed mm. hundreds of people about the yes. need to hold on firmly to the recipe so that when you travel, it doesn't, and that there is that sense of groundedness. But you're absolutely right, you know, that these cultural layers are as real as yes. those recipes when they originate. For me, the journey is as much a part of the history of that dish. Yes. It doesn't... And actually, what do you root it to? Should we be rooting mm. it to the Samusak in Turkey? Mm. Or should we be rooting it to the Mughal court? Who owns it? Who yeah. owns it? And at what point? So this is why, for me, it's interesting because people say, oh, you're, you really don't like authenticity, do you? And I said, no, I think it's extremely important. Yeah. I really think it's very, very important. Yeah. I just question what it is. And I think that what it is, is it's not a sort of static thing where you can say definitively, this is authentic. Yeah. No, for me, it's an unending reel of snapshots. So what there I want go. to say is that my samosa is authentically third culture 2023 East London. <laughs> yes. Exactly. And third culture is what you have called this type of food. It's probably used more in sort of Asian American cooking in America. Uh, it's certainly not a phrase that I can, uh, I can, I can claim as my, my own. It's probably, I guess I'm, I'm using it quite a lot because I feel like it really, it, it yeah. really connected with me. It's this sort of idea of sort of, you know, 
it really connected to this sort of hybridity and that queerness that I wanted yeah. to kind of get across. So I think it, it, it's very fitting for the book. And it's absolutely encapsulated in your Stilton and Tamarind Toasty. Go on. <laughs> Tell us about this one. So one of the things around the book is that um, I really want people to think about the different ways that flavours from different cultures can collide deliciously and create a spectrum of something completely new and different. Um, And for me, actually, a lot of the book does do this. I, I take things that are extremely British and collide them with something that is extremely Indian and kind of say, taste that and see what happens. And so for me, firstly, who doesn't love a toasty? I had to have a toasty in the book because, you know, as I say, you know, I've got, it's not complicated food, but it's my take on things. And I, you know, I eat toasties all the time and there's a really interesting sort of story around, um, you know, sort of the the history of the sandwich and the way that Indians have kind of taken the sandwich and sort of done all sorts of riffs on them. Um, Things like the Mumbai toasty, things like, you know, sort of masala paninis, et cetera. I wanted to do my own take on it. and I wanted this recipe to be basically an ode to sort of my favourite thing in Indianness, which is tamarind, which is, you know, itself not exclusively Indian, but it's very imbued in a lot of the food that I mm. eat. And then something extremely Leicester, which is Stilton. And it originally started out as a sort of, I would often have Stilton cheese on toast, which I would put tamarind sauce on. And so I kind of just turned that into a toasty. But for me, there's this combination of very salty, sharp Stilton and then extremely tangy, um, tamarind, which in combination, I mean, it's two loud flavours. Some people would say you can't put loud flavours with loud flavours. I disagree. I'm very much a more is more when it comes to flavours sort of person. And actually, the combination of Stilton and tamarind together is extraordinary and is something that amplifies not only the savouriness of the Stilton, but the tanginess of the tamarind, which in combination becomes this sort of strange it's... well it's a song i mean it's a song you call it an intercultural flavor chord i mean for me it's virtually using the entire piano i mean it yeah. is absolutely loud and and it hits you yes. right it in the does. chest doesn't it the, the third food moment does the same sort of thing but it tells a a story it's a wonderful circular story of britishness to indianness back to yeah. britishness it's the melton road chicken tikka masala (laughs) i made this last night and uh it's a fantastically interesting story tell tell us why you've chosen this one well i mean chicken tikka masala is or was at one point our national dish so when i'm talking about britishness and indian it is absolutely a part of the culinary narrative there now for me what's interesting about it is that often there can be sort of this perception that Indian people don't approve of this dish because it's not seen as authentically Indian because it is a British invention. But for me, what it does is it tells the narrative of immigrants. And now, tikka masala itself, you know, there are so many stories around where it was invented. But what we do know, regardless of which of those is the origin of it, if there even ever can be one, what we do know is that it's popularised in the 60s, 1780s by Curry House establishes around the country, you know, in places like Brick Lane, in Birmingham, in Bradford, in Glasgow, who are, in most part, enterprising first-generation Pakistani and Bangladeshi creators and business owners, yeah. not yeah. Indians. Although the countries were all connected before partition. So for me, there's this whole sense, idea of, you know, there are these sort of Pakistani and Bangladeshi entrepreneurs around the country representing Indianness with this dish which is spuriously Indian 
But, you know, we as children, we grew up going to those curry houses because we were British. A lot of them were owned by my parents' friends. Or we would, you know, we, we were curious. We were interested. Well, what is this thing that's parading as Indianness? Yeah, you know, there's this sort of performative Indian cuisine going on. Well, what is it? And yeah. it is undeniable that whatever its roots are, whatever its origins, it was absolutely delicious. And it was nothing like what we ate at home. <laughs> and that's why we went. <laughs> So it was, you know, because why would we go out for dinner yes. somewhere where it's exactly the same? It did not matter to us that it was parading itself as Indian and wasn't in any way connected to anything that we ate at home. And the experience of going to curry houses was a big part of my childhood. And so cyclically, in the same way that when you go on holiday, you come back and you try and create the dishes of your holidays. And the way that, you know, you go to a delicious restaurant, you try and recreate those dishes at home. We grew up trying to recreate curry house tikka masala at home because it was delicious but it's a dish that's now gone global and is also (laughs) sold in Delhi and Mumbai as this curious sort of British thing so I think for me what I is this what this dish does is it represents the transformative quality of Indian food and I talk about this quite a bit in uh, there's actually an essay in the book which sort of talks about the way that this sort of you know is a representation I, I don't think it's something that should be not applauded. If anything, I think it should be absolutely celebrated as a journey of migrants and the transformative power of this cuisine. Absolutely. And I think in your fourth food moment, it it sort of transforms again in the saffron custard tart with candied fennel seeds and roasted strawberries is a very British dish. Um, you know, it doesn't feel that it is a particular Indian dish. It has flavours of India in it, but it is absolutely a cultural dish that represents who we are in Britain now. I think it's a beautiful custard tart made with digestive biscuits. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, it's heaven. I absolutely love it. And I'm going to make it for my, my food writing retreat, actually. Oh, wonderful. Uh, which Elizabeth Luard is going to be our muse in residence, okay, so she will incredible. eat your beautiful custard Wonderful. tart. Tell me how you came up with this dish and why for you it's your fourth food moment. Again, for me, it was something that I want. I wanted to do things that were seen as quintessentially British. So in the book, there is, you know, there's a roast. You can, you can basically make a an entire classic Sunday roast from the book. Sunday roast is not something I grew up eating. <laughs> like, you know, we did not have those at home, but... It is a, it's such a part of Britishness that I wanted to kind of sort of say, well, if we were to have Brit Sunday roast at home, this is what we would do. And, you know, we do, we do often what we would have at home called English dinner. It's not on a Sunday because a Sunday is reserved for sort of special Indian dishes like biryani. But it's interesting for me is that this whole idea of like, you know, if I was to make an English dinner, it would always be imbued with my mother tongue, which is, you know, the flavours of, of India and kind of the intercultural flavours that I love. So... There are a few things I wanted to do. So there are scones, there's a Victoria sponge, there's roast chicken, there's roast potatoes, but imbued with my mother tongue, which just naturally comes out. So for me, I adore the flavour of saffron and fennel seeds and, and orange. And for me, it's my take on something that is extremely British and extremely Indian at the same time that works harmoniously as one. And you sort of go, you take a bite into it and you kind of go, what is that? Because it's so familiar and yet also so sort of such a spectrum of newness to a lot of people but for me it's kind of a way of me sort of saying well that's all of me that's all of me when I sort of talk about the multiplicity of identity and sort of this hybridity that from this dish for me is an expression of that you know it's sort of really textural it's really creamy it's slightly tangy with the sort of orange and the fennel seeds it's kind of got some crunchy bits on it like 
all of these things, I kind of wanted to go, well, that is what I'm celebrating with this book, is that, you know, you can be all of these things and actually you can totally imbue them with yourself. And is it British? Yes. Is it Indian? Yes. It's actually all of these things because those cultures are not fixed. And actually, a custard tart that I make myself in 10 years' time might be completely different. And in 100 years' time, who knows what's going to be imbued into the people that are writing books from a third culture perspective then. I wanted to celebrate that and sort of say, well, this is my snapshot of now. Let's see what happens next. Thanks for listening. Do follow me on Instagram. I'm at Foodjilly Smith. And you can also find a little surprise over on Substack each week where I ask my guests for a little extra something. Gadeep has not only created a special cooking of books Spotify playlist, but he's written beautifully on my Substack about his choices. It's a must read and a must listen. Just search for Jilly Smith on Substack and I'll see you next week. Music